Welcome to The Leading Tone, a podcast that explores all aspects of all types of music. Today we discuss our favorite composers. I'm Fernando. And I'm Alex, and welcome to episode one of The Leading Tone podcast. We're really excited about this passion project of ours. Uh, We've had this idea for a while now, and we were looking for a way to create a listening experience for lovers of all kinds of music. Uh, So we're not going to exclusively be discussing classical music, though that is our main background here. And we wanted to open gateways for those who would like to listen to more music and maybe don't know where to start or just want to hear people talk about their favorite composers and artists on their way to work or school. Both of us are pretty uh, avid podcast listeners, so we we wanted to create something unique in the podcasting world. Fernando, do you want to weigh in on your thoughts on starting the podcast and stuff? Yeah, so I I just wanted to start the podcast because I thought it'd be a fun and unique way to introduce more people to the kind of music that we love and the kind of music that we just like to talk about and share with each other. So we're just trying to share that love for music with uh, everybody else. Yeah. And just some things to kind of expect in the future. This episode one, we're talking about some of our favorite composers in our, uh, uh, in our top 100 composer process or bracket, if you will. <laughs> some other things to expect from us, we we would like to do some more composer uh, deep dives. So while today is more of a general overview of some of our favorite composers, uh, we would like to take some episodes to dive a little deeper into specific composers that we're passionate about, as well as some takes on different genres, such as musicals and jazz. So there's just an infinite amount of things for us to talk about. It's kind of daunting, actually. It's yeah. a lot <laughs> to look forward to, too. For sure, yeah. So uh, we'll definitely be taking requests in the comments. Why don't we go ahead and get started here? Today, we're going to be discussing the first 10 composers, plus a few extra, in our top 100 composer list. So the way this works is we both came up with a list of top 100 composers, then I took both of those lists and averaged them together, took the composers that we had the highest average ranking for. Those are 10 of the composers that you're going to hear from today. Now, loosely, uh, each month we're planning on doing a new iteration on this, this style of episode where we talk about 10 more composers but today is a really exciting one because we get to kick off our first episode with talking about some of our favorite composers and our favorite music so uh with that let's go ahead and get started here number one on our average list Dmitry Shostakovich very famous Russian composer I had him ranked number three on my list and Fernando had him ranked number two now, Fernando, you want to weigh in on your thoughts with, with Shostakovich and uh, some pieces you like? Yeah. So with Shostakovich, he's really the first composer that I was really interested in and really led me to get into 20th century classical music and classical music in general as well. So I just really love his heavy use of irony and dark humor in his music. <laughs> it's uh, it's entertaining but also it has a a great and interesting background 
that um, is great to look into. I'm currently reading uh, a biography about Shostakovich, and that's really great. So that will be some of that information will be included in the deep dive. But some pieces that I like by him are uh, all of his 15 symphonies. I think are great. <laughs> oh yeah, all every uh, single one of them. <laughs> the jazz suites are great. The piano concerti are great, and then the string quartets. There's also 15 of those, and those are equally as amazing. Um, I just think that those are some great pieces by Shostakovich, and I think that they'd be great to check out. Yeah, and we uh, we talked about a, a little bit ago kind of making a gateway for people who want to be a little bit more interested in orchestral music or classical music. Dmitry Shostakovich really is great place to start. He has, um, he has a lot of interesting um, inspirations because he takes elements of Stravinsky, his more neoclassical phase, as well as some of the more romantic elements of Mahler, and just puts it together in this really, really interesting and engaging way. I think the piece that really did it for me was his Seventh Symphony, but like I was telling Fernando earlier, usually whenever I start to dive in on a composer, I'll start with their symphonies if they're a symphonic writer, and I start with their First Symphony, and listening to that first symphony you wouldn't think that that was his first symphony because it it's really really a great work and the quality throughout all 15 of his symphonies does not diminish one bit and his string quartets are really well known in the in the string repertoire those are really really great he also uh did some film music the the gadfly which is great great music really really love that film score there and his set of 24 preludes and fugues. Uh, if you're looking for a place to start with piano music, go ahead and start there. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I think if we're going to dive just a little bit into the symphonies, I think it's important to note that while they might be, uh, a lot of them might be dark and, uh, you know, uh, a little bit heavy. I think, I think I know where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that uh, there's a lot of variety within the symphonies, too. And I think, for me, uh, 5 and 9 are my favorites. I knew you were going to say 9. Yeah. <laughs> and and 5 has that really dark and heavy and ominous feeling for a lot of it. Uh, and then 9 uh, is almost, you know, almost the, the comedy of Mozart, where he, it's that yeah. really, you know, cheeky and kind of uh, goofy you know silliness but a lot of people don't recognize the humor within it um just because they don't know the background of the piece and we'll i'm sure we'll get into that on a later episode Uh, we we've both sat down together actually and listened to his ninth symphony and uh having studied a lot of orchestral music pretty extensively uh we've found ourselves just laughing out loud at some of the the funny stuff that he puts in there not to say that it's a it's necessarily comedic music it's more uh Inside jokes for us that are uh, a little bit more uh, well-versed in the orchestral repertoire. So uh, definitely a good piece to check out by Dmitry Shostakovich. Uh, anything else you want to add with Shostakovich, or should we move on? No, I think we're good to move on. All right. So next we have Rafe Von Williams, our number two composer on our average top 100 composer list. I had him ranked number four, and Fernando had him ranked number five on the list so pretty close in our ranking another thing you'll start to see with this composer ranking 
is some of our personal tastes come out based off of where we put some composers. Uh, I think we had six composers that lined up on our top ten list, but then we each had a few that didn't appear in each other's top ten, and we'll also discuss those. Anyway, let's get on to Rafe Vaughn Williams. So, born in England in 1872, Vaughn Williams studied music at the Royal College of Music and Trinity College. At his time at the Royal College of Music, he befriended Gustav Holst, which we'll talk about in a future episode. And they actually were uh, remained colleagues throughout his career. I think the most important thing about Vaughn Williams' music, the fact that he, to me at least, and to a lot of scholars, I'm sure Fernando agrees, that he was the first British composer of the... Uh, 19th and the 20th centuries to really have his own British voice in music. Because I think that when you look at Vaughn Williams and you think of his symphonic writing, uh, the texture of his orchestration, part of this was a uh, was result of studying with Ravel. When, when he studied with Ravel, Ravel taught him to, to kind of clear up his uh, the textures that he would create and as a result, and with Von Williams' personal uh, personal touch there, you start to see a new, unique genre of uh, British orchestral music that uh, a lot of composers since have tried to emulate, but I think that there's something so uniquely Von Williams about his music, and I, th- I think it's really interesting, his influence from, from Ravel, and also his influence from uh, his time in the military that had a lasting effect on his music he was in the military during the first world war so i think that that has a huge effect on his music fernando do you want to weigh in with ray von williams yeah with von williams for me he's another fantastic symphonist i think that a lot of the times his symphonies go under the radar uh he has nine symphonies and that is uh no small feat (laughs) for sure um yeah, I totally agree that he established a new precedent for British music uh, by taking all of those influences that you talked about and combining them with the folk music, too. I think the folk yes, music is... Yes, the folk mo- music is something I forgot to mention there. That yeah. was also a really important influence. Yeah, I think the folk music is also something that just really it all incorporates into one cohesive style that Vaughn Williams created for himself and for a lot of English composers after him. Exactly. Well, I think... we. A few weeks ago, I sent a P- Fernando a piece by Butterworth. Uh, that might have been that might have been a month or two ago, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, time, time has no meaning in quarantine. We were discussing that piece, and it, it came uh, during. I think that piece came during Von Williams' time, but don't quote me on that. But it definitely, you could tell he was trying to emulate that kind of sound. So a lot of British composers went the Vaughn Williams route in terms of how they orchestrated things. And I it I think that Vaughn Williams just was the de facto master of that. And some pieces that we really, really love by him, his Sea Symphony, his London Symphony, uh, Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis, The Lark Ascending, I don't think I could get enough of any of those pieces. I I think that those have been some of my most most listened to pieces this year, actually. As Fernando will tell you, uh, he used to be, at the two of us, he was the lover of Ray Vaughn Williams. And I was uh, 
a little bit more iffy on him. But then when I really dove deep into his music, I just found one of my favorite composers. And <laughs> uh, with these top 10 composers, I think we can fo- both agree that on any given day, any one of these could be our number one composer. <laughs> because I think more often than not, whenever we sit down and listen to Ray Vaughan Williams together, he ends up being our favorite composer that day. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think anybody that that enjoys film music and anybody that likes more of a 20th century sound, both people can easily get into Von Williams music um, because Fantasia on the theme by Thomas Tallis, that one is very film music like. Um, and some of the later symphonies are much more atonal and yeah. aggressive. So I think that it's a, a great meeting point for people that like something a little bit more soft and a little bit uh, more aggressive as well. And in that vein, I think I forgot to mention his Pastoral Symphony, which mm-hmm. is another great one to jump in with. All right, Fernando, anything else on Rafe Vaughn Williams, our number two composer? No, I think we're moving on. All right. Now we're moving on to my personal number one composer. We have Tchaikovsky. I had him ranked number one, and Fernando had him ranked number 11. Something I always think about when I think of Tchaikovsky and Romanticism, he 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 was alive mid-1800s, 1840 to uh, 1893. When I think of Tchaikovsky and Romanticism, I think of how he used the guidance of the sonata form, which had been kind of a staple in a lot of, in a lot of music for that time period and the hundred years before. He used it more as a suggestion. It, he used the rough template, but the way he developed his melodic material, there's just, there really is something just so romantic about how how he writes a melody and how he develops it throughout his symphonies. In particular, his fifth and sixth symphonies, for me, uh, the, his fourth symphony is famous for just being one of the most recognized romantic pieces. And, oh my gosh, I haven't even gotten to his ballet music yet. <laughs> if you are a living person and you've watched television, you have heard Tchaikovsky's music. His f- famous music from the the Nutcracker, I think, is just one of the staples in any classical music enthusiast library. And I don't think that there are more beautiful melodies written than in those works. Fernando, do you want to weigh in on Tchaikovsky? Well, it's funny that you say it's a staple of classical music, too. I think it's a staple of childhood ballet companies as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) I think think that's actually where most people would know it from, and I think that's kind of funny. But I think it's a great... Uh, I think it's great exposure for most people to uh, to hear great music in uh, in that setting. Absolutely, uh, especially from a young age for the people that are dancing, and uh, for the parents as well if they haven't been exposed to it before. Uh, even more of Tchaikovsky's ballet music, we've got Swan Lake, uh, yeah. and then <laughs> and then his piano concerti are also. Amazing. I was just about to mention yeah. his piano concerti. But, oh my gosh! But really, all of his music is so I think emotionally charged and so dramatic that. It perfectly fits into that romantic style and just really pulls on your heartstrings and gets you feeling something. And I really love that about his music. And if you are a lover of opera, Eugene Onyegin is a must-see. I I recently took a class on opera literature. Um, I'm I'm in a graduate school right now, 
I think that that was one of the ones that stuck with me the most. And in terms of operatic representation on this list, I think that that's definitely worth mentioning here. All right, Fernando, anything else on Tchaikovsky? Yeah, I do want to say, actually, I think Tchaikovsky might have the most recognizable music on this list today. Absolutely. Because, I mean, between uh, the Nutcracker, Swan Lake, that theme from Romeo and Juliet that's in SpongeBob, but also <laughs> the, the famous love, scene, love uh, tune that most people know, uh, and then the 1812 Overture, I think that those might be the most recognizable themes on this oh, entire absolutely. list today. There's just so much to talk about with Tchaikovsky, and I... I I think that that was part of the huge reason why he was the first Russian composer to really make it big internationally, because the Russian five, and most of them were not musicians by training. So I think that um, that was part of the reason why his music ended up becoming so popular in America, especially like Fernando said, his most, uh, more of his melodic works definitely became really popular over here in the States. So I think that just by that merit alone, he's worth discussing on this list. And then you talk about his symphonies and he becomes my favorite composer. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, so if you're looking for something that's familiar, so, you know, a, a theme that you might hear that is familiar, I think Tchaikovsky is the composer for you. Or if you're just looking for something that will really maybe make you cry or make you feel a certain way, I think Tchaikovsky's the guy for you. Absolutely. Every year for, uh, for Father's Day, I get my dad more of Tchaikovsky's music to listen to in his car and he he loves it and he's not a musician at all so I think that that is a good jumping in point Uh, a gateway composer if you will all right Fernando let's move on to next on our list this is composer number four John Sibelius he was ranked number two on my list and number 10 on Fernando's. Sibelius, composer, conductor, violinist, uh, a lot of nationalist music. Some of his key inspirations had to be Bruckner and Wagner, but he was a little bit more organic than either of those two, whereas I feel like Bruckner and Wagner were pretty... uh, generally in their symphonic writing, fairly forceful and aggressive and had really, really long developments. Sibelius is a little bit more concise than that. When Also, when I think Sibelius, I think that the biggest thing to talk about is the transparency in orchestration, just the lushness of his works, because uh, Sibelius will, he he will tug at your heartstrings similarly to Tchaikovsky in his more romantic music like Romeo and Juliet. I think that a teacher of mine once said, while he's kind of viewed as more of a B-tier in terms of influence, I think that's, uh, I actually, we'll talk about that more later because I think that's far from the truth because we have another episode planned where we're talking about all of the influence that Sibelius had on the, on particularly Nordic composers. I think that every single composer in that episode in some way was influenced by Sibelius, but (laughs) I'm rambling here back to Sibelius. I think that Sibelius is a good one to jump into after you've jumped into maybe Tchaikovsky or Beethoven because his music does require a little bit more patience because it's not 
as exciting necessarily, but I don't think you'll hear more gorgeous orchestration and gorgeous melodies anywhere else. Fernando, you want to jump in on Sibelius before I talk for an hour? Yeah, I think uh, I think that you're completely uh, on track, like uh, right on the ball. Uh, Sibelius, I think the big thing with his orchestration is that it's really thoughtful, right? Yes. That the use of brass is, is well thought out. And the use of all of the instruments is well thought out to the point where you do get that really lush orchestration that uh, is very transparent, like he said. So I think the big thing for him was um, that thoughtfulness that he put into the orchestration in that way. Right. There's times where the brass will play and I'll have to look at the score and be like, oh, the brass are playing there. Okay, because it's hidden so well by the uh by really really great orchestration of the strings and the woodwinds but then you get to the finale of his second or his fifth or um his seventh symphonies and then the the brass just can can let let it rip a little bit more but it's never overbearing it's never to the level of like a New York Phil recording of a Mahler symphony finale, you know, <laughs> where uh, it's it's never quite that that level. And I don't think that that's a coincidence on the recording side. I think it's just a, a testament to the to the orchestration that Sibelius brought and definitely inspired a whole generation of Nordic composers to follow suit. And we're really excited to talk about that on that episode but fernando do you have anything else on sibelius yeah i think we can't forget uh his violin concerto i think that's (laughs) for me it might be my favorite violin concerto Uh, mine as well i can't believe i didn't even mention it oh my gosh right and i think that that is one of his uh, masterworks along with all eight of his symphonies and finlandia the other absolutely yeah i think that his orchestral writing just can't be ignored when you're talking about well when you're talking about any kind of composer i think that sibelius's writing is just among some of the most thoughtful and engaging for us especially so definitely worth checking out john sibelius all right moving on here we have what is this number five ludwig van beethoven i had him ranked number six and fernando had him ranked number nine on the list and uh, speaking of nine uh, his famous nine symphonies, 32 piano sonatas, chamber works, 16 string quartets, and the composer that brought about the Romantic period. So what isn't there to talk about with Beethoven? Uh, from his Eroica Symphony, which scholars consider to be the gateway into the Romantic period itself, where you have that opening... And then all of a sudden, the low strings have the melody. Almost unheard of at the time. I think that just that fact alone ended up <laughs> and ended up creating a whole new genre of music. And it's just it's crazy to me how much he really did for the Romantic period and just for music in general. Fernando, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, I do want to hit the the third symphony too. I think it's also really important to remember or to know that the first movement alone of his third symphony is the length of most other composers' entire symphonies. (laughs) (laughs) And especially at the time, like that's, 
I to give you a reference, Beethoven uh, was alive from 1770 to 1827. So I think when you're looking at his life and music history, the the thing with Beethoven, he really came about like at just the right time. I think that if uh, he hadn't come along, then we wouldn't be listening to a lot of the music that we're listening today. Absolutely, and I think that he had a lot of uh, innovations in music that really, uh, like you said, helped the Romantic period grow into what it is or what it was. Also a great sense of humor in his music, I think. Yeah. that I think that um, that's often overlooked in a lot of his music, but there is... Um, Right, it goes beyond the angst. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there, there's, um, there's definitely a, a lot of people that equi- equivalent uh, Beethoven with angst. But then you go ahead and listen to his sixth symphony coming right after his more angsty fifth symphony, his pastoral symphony, and oh my God, what some of the most gorgeously melodic and just uh, great harmonic writing I, I think that that's one of the the pieces to dive into after you've di- dove into uh his third symphony his eroica symphony as well as his fifth or his ninth or his seventh which mm-hmm. are uh, a little bit more popular but i just don't think it can be understated how important beethoven is for music history and it almost like those words coming out of my mouth almost sound a little bit redundant because if you're listening to this podcast, then uh, chances are you have an idea of the influence, uh, right? Because the, <laughs> the, the people that usually don't know too much about classical music, the two names that they bring up, Beethoven and Mahler, right? No, well. Mozart. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Uh, usually Mahler comes a little bit later. But um, Fernando, anything else on Beethoven? Obviously, there's more on Beethoven, but for the sake <laughs> of this episode. Right. I think we'll save the rest for uh, a deep dive. For sure. Yeah. So next, we'll move on to Richard Strauss. Speaking of a composer that Anytime I listen to his music, he usually ends up becoming my number one. And for a long time, I think he held the consistent number one spot on my list. He's now ranked number five on my list and number 12 on Fernando's list. And with Strauss, one of the biggest things to look at is his career, his career length. He was born in 1864, passed away in 1945. If you think about all that happens in the world during that time period, I mean, two world wars, let alone uh, you have, uh, there's just just so much going on in the world. And in his early career, he wrote a lot of solo and chamber works. But then as you get to the turn of the century, he turns towards uh, a little bit more romantic in in tone. You have his operatic works and his tone poems that are really, really revered in the genre. His Alpine Symphony, which for a long time was my favorite piece of music ever written. Till Eulenspiegel. Talk about a piece with with great humor. It's literally called Till Eulenspiegel's Merry Pranks. Uh, That piece is just so incredibly clever. You have also Sprock, you have Don Juan. There's just so much to dive into with Strauss. And 
I actually will say that I think that he's one of the best composers to jump into after you've uh, started with your Tchaikovsky's and your Beethoven's because Strauss is just, he gets right to the point. He he does have, a, some of his pieces have a little bit more development than others, but those tone poems are just a really, really great way to jump into orchestral music. Fernando? Yeah, I think with Strauss's music, there's just so much range. He has <laughs> he has that humorous element and he has that dramatic element, sometimes in the same piece. And it's just fantastic to listen to. He's just a great pivot point from the Romantic period to the 20th century with his musical stylings and the way that he did a lot of things. Even though he backtracked a little bit later in life, I think he still has enough of an output to be interesting if you're a fan of the Romantic period or if you're a fan of the 20th century uh, type music. So I think that Strauss is just a great composer with so much range and so exactly. much to offer to any listener that is uh, interested in getting into that type of music. You listen to his Serenade for Winds and then you listen to Electra or Salome and you would think it's two completely different composers. But once the 20th century elements started to really appear in Strauss's music, I think he just he took on a whole new identity as a composer and a lot of people view his music as a continuation of Wagner's German romanticism but I don't think it's that simple at all I think that it's his music is just so so much more infinitely complex without being nearly as long-winded he took the ideas that Wagner would go through a couple hours and develop versus Strauss, his music is a, is much less lengthy, but I think he communicates more in that short amount of time. So where would you say that people should start with Strauss? Because there's such a range to Strauss's music. Absolutely, I think his Alpine Symphony. I think that that is the piece to start with. And then you can get into Till Eulenspiegel and Don Juan. I think that the Alpine Symphony, though, is a great start. As someone who... Uh, who has visited some of the, the great mountainous regions in Germany and Austria, uh, I can say that that piece, I might be biased because that piece does have a pretty profound effect on me, but the I just think that that's probably his most romantic work and his, also the most vivid in its picture painting. It's because it's obviously meant to depict... Um, mountains so you have a lot of dif different aspects you have the beginning of the piece i believe is the is the sun coming up and then you have the depiction of waterfalls and then uh, a whole lot of stuff you can read up uh, on it a little bit more and we'll definitely talk about it on our composer deep dive with strauss but i think that that's absolutely the starting point for ricard strauss and a lot of people might have already heard strauss's music for also spock's Zarathustra that was yeah. included <laughs> in 2001 a space odyssey that was a kind of a big part of that movie so exactly and it's funny because uh that's probably the one that I visit the least in my Strauss listening, just because it's, um, I feel like I did hear it so much growing up. Obviously, they only use kind of a small snippet of, it's a much right. longer piece, but you've definitely heard his music if you've seen a Honda commercial. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, um growing up, there had to be hundreds of those on TV, so you've definitely heard music of Richard Strauss. 
All right, this next one, I'm going to let Fernando take the reins on because he is definitely more of an expert on Paul Hindemith, ranked number 13 on my list and 7th on Fernando's list. Uh, prolific German composer, violist, uh, teacher, conductor. I think that there's just there's so much to dig into, and this is the first composer on our list that I would actually say maybe hold off on at first, but as you grow into your love for orchestral music, this is definitely one you can't underestimate. Fernando? Yeah, so with Hindemith, I think it's really important to realize that he was such an intelligent composer. He really worked very hard to further music theory uh, and use those or advocate for those 20th century elements that some people weren't using yet or that some people were using and he wanted them to be a little bit more widespread. Uh, but I think he did a lot for furthering music uh, theory. And I think he was very well versed in all of the instruments as he has so many sonatas for so many different instruments. So I think that he's uh, plenty well versed in those uh, different instruments. So his orchestration ends up being very interesting at least yes. <laughs> at the very least. And the, the music itself is very theory based and very, uh, complex in that way and very academic in that way but also for somebody that enjoys that like myself it's very interesting and engaging yes it's definitely from the theoretical side of things I don't think you're going to find a more interesting composer and not to knock on his emotional content as a composer because I really I do believe that uh, a lot of uh, some of Hinnemann's music uh, maybe not a lot of it is actually pretty tuneful. You have his symphonic metamorphosis, a great way to jump into Hindemith. Like I said, I think that Hindemith is a really good jumping in point once you have started to get into orchestral music a little bit more. Anything else, Fernando? Yeah, I think that symphonic metamorphosis is definitely the the piece to start with with Hindemith, I think. Um, if you're coming from a place where you already have some understanding of music theory. Um, and then I would say probably the second movement is where you'd want to start with that. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> yeah. The tur yeah. 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 I think probably the, the second movement or the March is also pretty exciting and it, oh yeah, pretty popular too. Right. And so those are both good places to start with Hindemith. If you're interested in that after a little bit of experimentation with some of the other composers. Absolutely. All right. So next Let's move on to Sergei Rachmaninoff, ranked number 15 on my list and sixth on Fernando. So late romantic composer, uh, give you a timeline. He was born in 1873, passed away in 1943. A lot of, I, I often compare Rachmaninoff in terms of orchestration to Sibelius, but I could say his melodic content and his development could not be more different than Sibelius. So his tone poems are a great way to, to start listening to Rachmaninoff, as well as his great piano concertos, also some great chamber works there. But I would start with his tone poems and piano concertos, as well as his symphonic dances. Man, that I think that that is one of the pieces that really 
brought me into loving Rachmaninoff as well. Uh, oh my gosh, there's so much to talk about his piano music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think oh. this is the first composer on the list that their piano music is really the star of the show. Exactly. Whereas most of the other ones, their orchestral music, I would say, is the star of the show. But with Rachmaninoff, I think the uh, the piano music really shines bright, and I think that his music is probably the the best demonstration of that transition from the uh romantic period into the 20th century i think he lives in that or he lived in that time that was that transitional turn of the century uh time period that i think personally should be classified as a different uh you know different period of music so rachmaninoff is perfectly fit into that i think his music is very academic but also extremely tuneful there's so many great lyrical melodies that just soar over some complex harmonies that you aren't even aware of until you look at the score so i just really i love his melodies the orchestration his harmonies so much about rachmaninoff i really enjoy absolutely uh i don't have much else to add i think that you really uh nailed it there with rachmaninoff definitely uh worthy of being discussed in this top 10 list for sure next leonard bernstein for me, I always start with his uh, conducting career. I know Fernando and I discussed this a little bit earlier. We always start with his really extensive conducting career and what he did for orchestral music in the U.S. in terms of um, his Harvard lectures as well as his television lectures on classical music, his young person's concerts. And um, when you're talking about Bernstein, I think that's the first thing that comes up. But underneath all that, he is just... a uh, devilishly clever composer. (laughs) I think that when you're talking about uh, Bernstein's music, I think clever is absolutely the first word that comes to mind for me. And he was also a really, really skilled pianist, as you see in a lot of his, his lectures and on television. He played piano pretty often. Well, for me, with Bernstein, I think that he really takes complex music and presents it in an accessible way. Exactly. (laughs) Where he he incorporates these pop styles of jazz and doo-wop and, you know, other things that were popular at the time or were previously popular. Uh, And he incorporates that into something orchestral or something that he puts into a musical, something that he puts into um, a large-scale work like his mass. I think that those are the really shining aspects of his music and again he's another funny guy he's really you know he has that irony and that humor that lets him be really expressive and tongue-in-cheek so he's another one that's really just um just fun to listen to i think that's the best way to describe bernstein's music and yeah i think um bernstein is speaking of those complex harmonies i did an arrangement for our trumpet choir at our school uh of his symphonic dances for west side story and I really did not understand and appreciate how complex a lot of that harmony and also how crazy hard a lot of that music is because especially trying to reduce that score for five trumpet players was really tough and maybe a bit off a little bit more than we could do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that, it was a lot of fun and um, I think that his music is absolutely uh worth talking about on this list anything else on bernstein fernando yeah so where where to get into bernstein i think a lot of people have already heard west side story or seen west side story 
But if you haven't, that is a must-see um, and a must-listen to, right? I think that that one is just fantastic and really another, like I said, fun uh, musical work that gets you really engaged. And it's a, a retelling almost of older mu- or an older story, but I'll let you discover that on your own. I also think the Overture to Candide is also a really great place to jump in because that one is another fun one that's really exciting. Uh, that one always oh, yeah. <laughs> gets gets my heart going, and you know I like to listen to that one when I drive, even though that might be a little dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, let's move on from Bernstein. We'll definitely dive into him more on one of our composer deep dives. Final composer on our average top ten is Igor Stravinsky famous Russian composer, ranked number 11 on my list and 14 on Fernando's. Born in 1882, passed away in 1971, so pretty long life. Um, With Stravinsky, just like Strauss, this is a composer that had many different periods in his composition. Some composers like Tchaikovsky or Vaughn Williams, you can listen to their earlier works and then their later works and still be like, yeah, that's definitely that composer. But Stravinsky was four or five different composers in one. <laughs> I, I don't think that there's uh there's really any other way of saying it from um, his work in ballet with the firebird Petrushka and the Rite of spring. Those are often the three most referenced works. Um, but all of all three of those works are just so inherently different that I think that when you're discussing Stravinsky, you really have to be articulate in terms of his uh, neoclassical phase, as well as some of uh, his other works that are a little bit more serial in nature you really have to differentiate between those those periods in Stravinsky's music. Fernando, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, so with Stravinsky, I think he was always really chasing that early success that he experienced uh, from the Rite of Spring and from um, even the Firebird Suite or just the Firebird Ballet. Uh, and he did go into so many of those different phases. And you see those neo- neoclassical elements that you were talking about in uh, Pulsinella, and in his violin concerto and there's just so much that Stravinsky tried to do he tried to do some of the 12 tone <laughs> stuff he tried to do the neoclassical stuff but it was a master at all of it right and he <laughs> he really did he did do a lot to help with those elements of music or those new features that were arising because he was kind of hopping on the new trend right it's kind of yeah. it's kind of like Stravinsky <laughs> a was a trendy composer yeah he was the uh, he was the TikTok guy of, <laughs> <laughs> of composers <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. That's great. <laughs> but but I didn't a great think we'd composer. Be comparing Stravinsky to <laughs> TikTok guy today. But there you have it, people. <laughs> yeah, these are our hot takes. <laughs> I, I love it. That that is great. And also, there's a great some great videos of Stravinsky conducting actually that you mm-hmm. should check out. That Fernando and I have uh, laughed about before because you you look at. Stravinsky scores and then you look at Stravinsky and <laughs> you wouldn't think it was the it was the same person but that that man uh wrote so much variety in music and I think that it, it's 
it's really hard to articulate how how much Stravinsky really did for so many so many different genres of music and we're gonna have a lot of fun in our deep dive on Stravinsky for sure (laughs) absolutely so where would you say somebody should jump in just from some of the pieces that we've mentioned where would you say somebody should jump in for sure I think his Firebird Suite is probably his most accessible Mm -hmm. and then if you're looking for something a little bit more visceral then his Rite of Spring is obviously great to jump into and then um, some of his other smaller works, there were a couple of periods where he utilized a little bit more traditional, uh, music forms like Concerto Grosso, uh, um, fugues and symphonies. Then you have works like his, uh, his works for winds. Mm-hmm. Those are, uh, pretty out there, but if you're looking for places to start, absolutely the Firebird and the Rite of Spring. And speaking of orchestration, we have uh, another situation where Stravinsky was able to do a lot in terms of orchestration, especially with the brass. There's just a lot of variety in instrumentation, and that was because he had the the ability to do so. He had the resources available to him in Paris with Diaghilev. Um, so you see that in a lot of his works, especially the the Rite of Spring. Yeah, I think the best example of that is the bassoon at the beginning of the Rite of Spring, starting <laughs> in the super high upper register. How many great soloistic bassoon players were there in the early 1900s? Right. <laughs> uh, right. Not not probably a whole lot. And He demanded a lot from uh, from each musician, I think, especially Absolutely. With, with the Rite of Spring, but in a lot of his music. Yes, and this is a composer that at the time was fairly controversial in in terms, of, especially with the Rite of Spring. Um, most people, if they've gone to school for music, know the story of the premiere of Rite of Spring. <laughs> Not a great night to be Stravinsky, but all these years later, I think that that's one of his most revered works. So don't think that premiere affected his popularity too much in the long run. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And all right, with that, we have discussed the average 10 composers of our top 100 composers list. Next, we're going to talk about a few omissions. Fernando had four composers on his list in the top 10 that I did not. And I had three composers in my top 10 that Fernando didn't. If you've been paying attention, you might have noticed that we have not discussed Fernando's number one composer yet. That's right. And that's because he did not make the cut in my top ten, but every day I listen to Scriabin, <laughs> I uh, I think that he gets closer and closer to my top ten. Fernando, do you want to take off with Scriabin? Yeah, so uh, as we've said Alexander Scriabin is my number one composer on my list, uh, and I just find his entire biography to be fascinating. I think that he is so interesting, uh, but just for his music, I think he does a great job of mixing tonality and atonality in a time where that was still a very taboo idea. It wasn't as popular as it is now, or even uh, just a couple decades later in the 20th century. (laughs) Um, And I think super innovative for his time period in that way uh and in a lot of other ways 
he had very ambitious ideas for <laughs> for the presentation of music. Ambitious is putting it mildly. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, we'll get into that in his deep dive because I'm super excited to share all of the information uh, about Scriabin that I've read up on. So for Scriabin, I just love his uh, mixture of tonality and atonality. That again, he's living in that time period, uh, that bridge between Romantic period and the 20th century, and he's just got such great orchestration themes melodies you could just go down the list for me i think that it's all fantastic so uh what do you have to say about scrabin all of that and i mean um speaking of the biographical information it's also worth discussing his relationship with rachmaninoff Mm. as well i think that that is a really important thing to understand when you're listening to Scriabin's music because the two of them could not have had more different a music and they had a bit of a, a rivalry Rival, rivalry might be uh putting it a little bit too mildly because they did not exactly get along very well right yeah they were definitely <laughs> definitely competitive and were living in the same area uh so they were definitely <clears throat> um a bit of a rival, yeah. A bit of, or, they were definitely <laughs> yes. rivals with each other. Absolutely, so. and we'll dive into that a little bit more when we dive more into Scriabin. Um, next, we'll talk about one of my omissions. Well, before we do that, uh, if you're interested in getting into Scriabin, I highly recommend the uh, his piano concerto in F sharp minor. I think that one, that was the one that got me. Right. I think <laughs> that one, it has a little bit more of that, um, romantic feel, but it also has a lot of new ideas for the time. Uh, that is probably one of his most famous works. So I think that that one is super accessible and anybody can really get into that one. You'll really hear the crazy ways that he's incorporating piano into the orchestration that it's a completely separate idea but it works so well to make this cohesive unit that's um almost shimmering and uh just doing all of the jumping out at you i guess is the yes. right way to say it it's all <laughs> just if, jumping if out. you have an appreciation for for a great music theorist listen to just the first minute of that piano concerto in f sharp minor and then you will you will just fall in love. <laughs> right, right. Uh, we were driving to Kentucky last year and Fernando's like, man, you really got to check out this piece. And I think I had listened to it before. I'd, I hadn't really listened to it too intelligently, but then when I really sat down and listened to it, I was like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think that this is one of the, uh, I, I was just I was just so shocked that more people didn't talk about that piece. <laughs> right, right. So definitely a lot to talk about with Scriabin. We'll move on to one of uh, my composers that I had in the top ten, Aaron Copeland. So New York native composer, student of Nadia Boulanger, and um, student of a student of Dvorak. Uh, Ruben Goldmark was one of his composition teachers early on and copeland uh i mean he's instrumental to talk about when you talk about american music and the interesting thing about copeland and while there is a lot of influences from the american art form in music jazz he started to strive later in his career to create something that was uniquely american that didn't necessarily rely on jazz 
because uh, I, in terms of music history, there really wasn't much to that's worth discussing before that. And I think that besides jazz, of course, which uh, is just is a big part of his influence early on. But then as he started to move away from that, you start to see works like his Fanfare for the Common Man or uh, his Third Symphony that have this uniquely American sound that started that you can definitely tell influenced Bernstein for sure. This American sound that doesn't rely on just jazz and jazz harmony. So that that's a huge reason why he ended up being in my top 10. Fernando, do you want to weigh in a little bit on Copeland? Yeah, I just think that Copeland is unmistakably American, right? From his long and open American Plains type harmonies, yes. you know, those, <laughs> those open fifths and uh, all of the music that he has probably earlier in his life when he was using more of the popular styles um, before he went a little bit serialistic. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I, I do have to say that I think that there there was a lot of uh, noteworthy music before Copeland, too. I, I do think yeah. that there are a lot of people in that a lot of people in that turn of the century time period that were making a lot of progress. I think jazz can't be overlooked, right? Yes, and absolutely. Jazz, and I'm not trying to minimize jazz right. at all. We're huge fans of jazz. And I think what I really meant was in the realm of orchestral music. Yeah, in, in the realm of orchestral music, then I'd probably say, yeah, I think uh, Copeland is a big a big factor, but there are some, some interesting people before him. Well, uh, we'll have to do a deep dive yeah. on that because I think Fernando's a little bit more familiar than I am yeah. in, in terms of american music and with that let's move on to bartok fernando's number three composer and um bartok for me did not rank nearly as as highly ranked number 30th on my list but probably has still been my favorite composer at some point in time fernando do you want to jump in on bartok yeah i think the big thing with bartok is the influence of his ethnomusicological is that how you say that? <laughs> well, his studies in ethnomusicology, mm-hmm. that is the biggest thing that weighs heavy on his music. And it influences the harmonies. It influences the rhythms. I find that to be super interesting. Uh, we don't hear a lot of music from Eastern Europe, or we didn't really hear a lot of music before before Bartok from that Eastern European area that was folksy and specific to Hungary and that area, that Austro-Hungarian area. So I think that that's really um, an interesting and fresh take on music at the time. And I think he did a lot to further music theory by incorporating those folksy elements of Hungarian music into the kind of the mainstream of uh, 20th century music. Absolutely, for sure. Anything else on Bartok, Fernando? Uh well, where to start with Bartok? Well, right? yeah. <laughs> where where are we gonna where are we gonna dive in with Bartok? If you were to take a listen, if you think that it's interesting that he had that ethnomusicology background, uh, then I think let's see, where would you start for ethnomusicology? Probably let's mm. see. I maybe maybe the Wooden Prince. That's actually a yeah, pretty interesting. I think that that, that one's probably... a little bit too too twentieth century. Maybe Hungarian Pictures is probably better. Yeah, but that's lesser known. His most notable work is Concerto for Orchestra. I think oh, yeah. for sure. <laughs> um, and I think Concerto for Orchestra still draws upon that, especially. Um, I think there's a five eight section mm-hmm. in the intermezzo, probably. Yeah. I think. I think uh, yeah, we. I think we've talked about that section because I think you were writing something and it was a uh, and it was kind of similar to that. And yeah. I it out. Yeah, yeah. So I think even uh, the 
the big pieces, the big numbers that he has, like Concerto for Orchestra and Music for Strings, Percussion, and uh, Celesta. That's my they, personal favorite. Right. They all, <laughs> and the, uh, the Piano Concerti too. Yes. All of those pieces really have that influence of the folk music because that's kind of his background and that's what he was really interested in along with composing. So um, if I were to give one piece, I think Concerto for Orchestra. Concerto for Orchestra, I think. Uh, is, but if you're a little yeah. bit farther along into listening to classical music, then uh, Music for Strings, Percussion, and Celesta is definitely up there. Absolutely. All right, next we have Dvorak, who was ranked number 10 on my list. And I think Dvorak was one of my first great loves in music. When I was in high school, I played his eighth symphony with a youth orchestra I was in and fell in love with Dvorak. So uh, one of the great composers of the Czech Republic, um, the... um, uh, people often compare him to Brahms, and I definitely see that with his early writing, but he had a couple of uh, distinct periods because when he wrote his Eighth Symphony, he was on vacation. He spent a lot of his summers in this village called Visoka in the Czech Republic, and then he went to America and wrote his Ninth Symphony, The New World, which is his most popular work, but... I think the Eighth Symphony is the one that really uh, stole my heart. And we actually, the two of us, we played his Ninth Symphony in orchestra a few semesters ago and had a ton of fun with it. So I think that when you're talking about romantic music, uh, Dvorak is absolutely worth talking about. And just like Bartok, the uh, the the folk influences there. Um, right, this time from... Uh... Czechoslovakia or the yeah. Czech Republic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you, um, I think that that is, uh, another cool thing about Dvorak. I'm excited to do a deep dive on that because I, I did a paper on his eighth symphony a few years ago and had a ton of fun. So definitely we'll dive into some more Dvorak. Fernando, anything else? Yeah. I think Dvorak has a lot of really great instrumental and choral music. And I think that if you're into choral music, He's also a great composer for that, and if you want to get into that, uh, we could talk about that. Uh, if you like that idea, let us know. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, I think that Dvorak is great for instrumental and choral music, uh, and people that are interested in that folk music influence as well. Absolutely. All right, next we have Sergei Prokofiev. That was Fernando's number four on his list, missing from my top ten. He ranked number 23 on my list, and that was... That was a really hard thing to do because, well, and like we said, I think Prokofiev has been my favorite composer at a time. Probably my entire top 25 has been uh, a favorite at some point. But uh, Prokofiev, where else is there to start but his classical symphony? Right. I think that is the, the best place to start for him. <laughs> uh, I think it that really shows kind of how how he learned and how he really mastered a lot of techniques and devices Absolutely. that were uh, specific to to classical music and composing so i think that that is just one of the big big things that he was great at at and taking these devices and just mastering the the specifics to how to use you know that classical style or how to use uh, other more contemporary devices like something a little bit more atonal yes. something polyphonic <laughs> i think that those are 
are the strengths of Prokofiev, and I think he was really intelligent in that way. Yeah, and with Prokofiev, uh, one of my former teachers said that um, with all composers now, they should all have to write a classical symphony in the vein of Prokofiev before they write anything else. And I think that um, the fact that he was able to do so so strongly and with such clear voice and so cleverly too if i might add it sets prokofiev apart from a lot of composers in that time period that i feel like dove more into what everybody else was doing and then you had prokofiev (laughs) who Mm -hmm. in addition to a lot more of his more experimental music i wouldn't really call prokofiev too experimental of a composer but with that classical symphony, it just shows off his range that he can he can write something a little bit more of a Shostakovich type vibe as well as write a intensely clever classical symphony. I know I keep talking about that that piece, but I think that it's really that important of a work. So would you say that that is where people should jump in if they're Absolutely. interested in Prokofiev? I don't. I don't think there is really a better starting place. If you're a really, if you're a really big romantic enthusiast, then I would suggest maybe starting with Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I think that that's a pretty easy to get into work. Uh, there's a lot of great melodies in there, and a lot of people will recognize the Dance of the Nights and um, Fernando. Do you have any suggestions? You had him ranked pretty high, so that's. Uh, I, I think that uh, you're recommendations maybe mean a little bit more than mine (laughs) yeah i think if you're interested in uh symphonic writing and something a little bit more 20th century or just a little bit more uh theory based then the symphonies are where to go but if you're interested in something a little bit more leisurely to listen to or something a little bit more um entertaining i think peter and the wolf is really fun Yes. And you might have heard that <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah, you might be already be pretty familiar with that. I know I watched it in my elementary school music classrooms growing up. So Right, so that one's a good one. Uh, and then, like you said, Romeo and Juliet is a great place to start as well if you're into something a little bit more romantic or a little bit more programmatic. Yes, exactly. Oh, the love for uh, Three Oranges. Fernando and I did a arranging challenge, and that was one of the pieces that he gave me. And that was one of the first pieces I gravitated to on that list that he gave me, and I had so much fun with it. I don't think I've shown you that yet, actually. I need to show you that. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. um... <laughs> well, that, that one is, is definitely more theory-based and yes. more 20th mm-hmm. century. So if but you're into if that... you like Shostakovich, if you, uh, if you have vibed with the other Russian composers, then that's another good one to, to jump in with. Absolutely. All right, so... The final composer that on my top 10 that was not in Fernando's top 10, my ranked number seven, and for a long time was my favorite composer. I know stereotypical trumpet player, Gustav Mahler. Now, both of us are trumpet players, and I think that if we looked in our orchestra folder and we found any symphony by Mahler, we would be incredibly excited. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... Mahler, the reason, one of the huge reasons he's in my top 10 is I think that while he, his development can be pretty long-winded, I think that the payoff is much more worth it than a composer like Wagner, where I think that the lead-up to the climax of his first and second symphonies in the finale, I think it 
both of those, the finale of the second symphony is 25, 30 minutes, and I the finale of the first symphony is 20 minutes. The lead-up to those climaxes, I think, are totally worth it. And I think if you're looking for a composer to really start to test your patience with a little <laughs> bit, <laughs> that, that, sounds, uh, that sounds like uh, negative, but... I think that if you're uh, a little bit more patient, that that's a good one to dive into after you've become familiar with some of the other great masters. But yeah. if you're interested in listening to music while you travel for a long yes. travel, right, for yes. a long vacation, or I think something, I mentioned to Fernando this is my airplane music. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you're interested uh, on listening to music on a really long trip, or if you just have a ton of time, a couple of hours to kill and you're like, you know, I really want to listen to some music, then definitely we recommend Mahler. Uh, I think that if you he... have a two and a half hour <laughs> car ride, then we'll get through uh, one and three quarters of <laughs> his symphonies. So. Yeah. And, you know, with Mahler, because the development is, uh, is so drawn out in a good way, uh, you can kind of have it on in the background and then just experience these crazy moments where you listen and you're yes. like wait hold on is, that, is this going on is this yes. the new theme and yeah. then you're like wow this is just incredible and it's it, it, those his symphonic works we haven't even gotten into his song cycles or anything are mm-hmm. just so massive and so intelligently written and if you're diving into his scores i don't think you can understate like just the thought he puts into developing a theme because over his I think 20 minute first movement of his second symphony the uh that opening theme is iterated on in countless amounts of ways he he takes that uh the similar to how Beethoven develops the theme from his famous fifth symphony the first movement he just he develops it in all kinds of really clever ways and oh my gosh i haven't even talked about uh any of Mahler's biographical information um we'll have to do that on a deep dive but Mahler did have kind of an unfortunate life and a lot of his music was born out of that so i think that that'll be a pretty emotional episode when we talk about Mahler but definitely there yeah. there's a lot to unpack there that we won't quite get into today so the last composer on our list, and every time Fernando talks about this composer, I want to more and more put him closer to my top ten. Uh, it's Mio. Right. And I'm going to let Fernando take the reins on this because every time uh, we talk about and he shows me more of Mio's music, I think that I become more and more of a fan. And th- this is a composer that is um you can start to see the differences between fernando and i's uh immediate tastes because at first uh scriabin was difficult for me to get into and mio but then the more that i explore their music uh fernando starts to convince me a little bit more so i'll let you take the reins on this fernando right so he uh mio is ranked number eight on my list and I think that he is a completely underrated symphonist. I think <laughs> he has 12 symphonies and all of them are just so interesting and engaging and nobody talks about them, <laughs> at least in my circles. I think his symphonies are super cool. And so uh, what makes him so cool? I think he has that 
really tasteful French harmony uh, that the right mixture of those harmonies that uh, he really developed in again that time period kind of in the turn of the century early 20th century where they're moving away from Ravel and Debussy their styles and I think they're really getting into something new and something innovative for uh, for harmony for music theory so I think Mio is great in that sense I also think he has great large-scale works um, and also works for winds, right? Yes. <laughs> he has uh, he has some works for winds that are uh, equally as notable as his orchestral music. So there's a lot to experience with Mio, and I think that he provides that really unique and um, you know it, it's almost like a, it's almost like spicy music, right? Because <laughs> because spicy. The, right because the the harmonies, I mean, the melodies are already great and uh lyrical in themselves and then you add the the right amount of you know powdered sugar or or well that's not spicy but <laughs> you add the right amount Get some of paprika on right just, oh yeah paprika is a great one so you just you just sprinkle it with some paprika and <laughs> i don't know how this turned into a cooking show yes. but, <laughs> but yeah, stay tuned for our episode on uh Polish composers where we talk about paprika <laughs> and Chopin and <laughs> right but like I was saying Mio has the the spice and the harmonies that makes the dish complete basically <laughs> so if yes. you're interested in that kind of stuff uh, I highly recommend the 12 symphonies but you can also start um, with the music for Prague as well that's a little yes. bit more heavy mm-hmm. um, but it's a little bit more well known mm-hmm. so you know you have to weigh your options there but Mio definitely um, in my top 10, number eight for me. Uh, and I think he definitely deserves it. Absolutely. Uh, and like I said, Fernando convinces me more and more each day that Mio is worthy of a spot on my personal top 10 list as I'm getting into more of his symphonies. I'm pretty new to his symphonies. I was pr- I was mostly only familiar with his works for winds earlier after I took that wind literature course in undergrad. But I think that I've now that I've started with his symphonies wow okay this is a composer that once once you're uh you're past uh, Tchaikovsky and Beethoven and getting more into maybe the realm of Hindemith or um some of these other composers this is absolutely worth a listen and with that that is all the composers that we are gonna discuss today and so each month we'll have 10 more to discuss as well as uh, some other omissions. And as we get down the list, uh, we'll have already talked about some of the omissions some more. So we'll probably talk about those a little bit less. But uh, in general, we'll do one of these episodes each each month, unless some cool interview come, comes around. We're hoping to get some people on the show for some interviews for a couple episodes. And uh, we're just really thankful that... Uh, that you're listening today, whether you're on your way to work or you're in quarantine or whatever it may be, uh, we love sharing our passion for music and um, this is a lot of fun for us. So we hope it's just as much fun for you guys. Um, We realize that some of the things we talk about are a little bit niche, but we will be taking requests in the comment section on whatever platform you're listening to us uh, of episodes to do. But we're in these first couple months, we'll try to do a lot of different variety of stuff to see 
things that you guys uh might like so fernando do you have any anything to add stay tuned for a lot more interesting uh content it's going to be very interesting to get into some of these composers a little bit deeper absolutely and get into some more light topics as well and some more topics outside of classical music i know we have a lot planned for that yes so stay tuned uh and thanks for listening all right Thanks for listening to the Leading Tone Podcast. You can email us at theleadingtonepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on social media at the Leading Tone Podcast with no spaces on Instagram and the Leading Tone Podcast on Facebook. Thanks again and tune in next Monday for more of the Leading Tone Podcast.